a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Welcome to this humble little spot where we revel in wrong think. It's all about thinking clearly and independently, especially during times of crisis. And I, I don't know if you've looked around lately, but uh, for about the last three years, uh, the crisis has been intensifying. But I'm here not to uh, burden you with uh, the sense that it's where we're done for. There's nothing we can do. I just want to point out if the situation really was that hopeless, their propaganda would be unnecessary. So hopefully what I'm doing is helping you see through the propaganda, see the positive things for what they are. And in a way, you know, if I'm doing my job correctly, by the end of this program, hopefully there's at least some corner of your heart that actually feels blessed, privileged. Do I dare use that word? Privileged to live in such a historic time where you can make a difference as only you can. I have some great sponsors who make this possible on a day-to-day basis. I hope that you'll take the time to do business with them. They include HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. Man, where to start? You know, I I haven't said much. Uh, It was just in the last couple of days that uh, uh, something happened. You know, I want to say somebody blew up, but something happened to uh, the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines in the Baltic Ocean or the Baltic Sea. And uh, it's, it's a huge deal. This is, this is the major pipeline through which Russia sends gas to um, Europe. And now there's just large bubbles, you know, coming up to the surface. And you know, Poland actually came right out and said, thank you, USA, for blowing up this pipeline. Now, of course, you know, U.S. officials, oh, hey, what are you looking at us for? But it, it's kind of hard not to when you had Joe Biden back in February before Russia began its special military operation in Ukraine, uh, saying that uh, we'll shut if they invade, we will we will take away the Nord Stream two pipeline. And a reporter says, "Well, how exactly do you intend to do that?" And Biden said, "We just we we can do it, and we will." Whoops! Little egg on your face there, sir. So yeah, I don't know. It's a major. Major escalation, though, in terms of international conflict. You know, just what we needed at a time like this. I don't pretend to have the answers, but uh, there are a lot of people asking questions. I do have to say, I got to give credit. A good headline is worth a lot. The best headline I've seen so far, is a, it's an opinion piece, but someone wrote, Who will rid me of this meddlesome pipeline? That, uh, that was good. <laughs> okay. I think it's, isn't that from a man from all seasons? Anyway, desperate times call for desperate measures. And I don't know if you have felt pushed into the corner and felt like, my goodness, I got to do something. It feels like the, the walls are closing in around me or I'm being backed into a corner. Well, if you are ready to step up and engage in some serious civil disobedience, I've got a suggestion for you. Actually, Annie Holmquist, writing for inter, in, intellectualtakeout.org, says the civil disobedience of raising a family is what we should really be looking at. 
I know. Does that sound subversive? It wouldn't have even 10 years ago. But today, in, in our woke society with, with critical justice, uh, social you know, activists and so forth, yeah, it's, it seems like that, that could actually be seen as, as a very uh, disobedient thing to do. Yet it seems to me like that's that's really the purpose of life. Here's what Annie says. She says, in case you haven't noticed, times have changed, and somehow those who hold to traditional societal norms have become the new face of counterculturalism. As this is unfamiliar territory to those on the traditional end of the spectrum, a few lessons are needed in how to live up to this new moniker. One of those lessons is how to engage in civil disobedience. Now, she says, if you're like me, the phrase civil disobedience conjures up uh, images of bra-burning hippies protesting Vietnam and demanding society make love, not war. But in a world where, where up has become down and good has become evil, civil disobedience no longer means that we must take to the streets and chain ourselves to some inanimate object. In reality, the best civil disobedience we as members of the new countercultural movement can perform is right in our own homes, raising our families. Author Neil Postman recognized almost a quarter century ago just how countercultural the idea of raising a traditional nuclear family was becoming. He wrote in his book, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century, If parents wish to preserve childhood for their own children, they must conceive of parenting as an act of rebellion against culture. So with that in mind, he offered a few simple ways in which parents can engage in this rebellion. Now, this, this sounds like, well, I don't know, is that going to put a target on me? Okay, well, listen, listen to what it takes to be a counterculture warrior and to engage in the civil disobedience of raising a family. First is to stay married. Doing so is an insult to the spirit of a throwaway culture in which continuity has little value, Postman wrote. Any Holmquist says today were very dismissive of the prominent role marriage plays in raising a strong family, with many parents choosing to divorce or never marry at all because they would rather pursue some elusive happiness for themselves rather than build a strong foundation for their children. As a friend recently observed to me, it's no wonder we have such an identity crisis these days with boys wanting to become girls and vice versa. The compounding of several generations of divorce has released children from their moorings, and they drift out to sea, desperately trying to find their places in life and gain acceptance. A second way to engage in this new civil disobedience is to raise a family in close contact with extended relatives, such as grandparents, aunts and uncles, and cousins. Postman wrote, It is almost un-American to remain in close proximity to one's extended family, likely referring to the tendency of adult children to move away and establish themselves in cities many miles from where they grew up. Now, Annie Holmquist says, Many adult children are also actively cutting off their parents over disagreements or other allegedly toxic behavior, making children ever more likely to miss out on the meaning of kinship and the value of deference and responsibility to elders. She says, I've had the fun of seeing this element of family-rooted civil disobedience in action during the past year, as I watched a friend of mine and her family move in across the street from her widowed mother. While I'm sure the close proximity has its challenges at times, all parties involved regularly express delight about being neighbors. Grandma has a steady stream of company, while daughter and son-in-law appreciate the meals and the help that another pair of adult hands can offer their growing family. A third exercise in civil disobedience is found in teaching children good morals. Postman encouraged us to insist that once children learn the discipline of delayed gratification and modesty in their sexuality, 
sexuality rather, and also self-restrained in manners, language, and style. In an age where children are told to be true to themselves and do whatever feels good, teaching them to restrain their emotions and desires, putting others first and self second, is to place oneself in opposition to almost every social trend. Postman's fourth recommendation for civil disobedience is the most rebellious of all, for it strikes at the heart of what today's society deems important, namely media, social, entertainment, and news. We should limit the media that our kids are exposed to, Postman wrote, while also being fully aware of what they do view and then being ready to counteract and critique the themes and values that media serves up. Keeping tabs on the media your children consume requires a lot of commitment and determination to stand your ground despite what your children and others think of you. It will also mean denying your children phone privileges until they are much older. It will also mean that you must set a good example, limiting your own media consumption in order to spend time with your children so they won't even miss the entertainment media provides. Furthermore, it will mean that you need to be prepared to have conversations with your children about difficult topics, things like sex, gender, and other hot-button political issues, so that they hear your perspective and viewpoint before they try to sneak off and find the answers to their deepest questions from media. Annie Holmquist asks, Are you ready to engage in a little civil disobedience for the new counterculture? It's not hard to start especially if you're already married with kids, and it can be done from the comfort of your own home. The hard part, however, is in the persevering, for this type of civil disobedience can't be done in one short little protest. It's a long march that requires patience and commitment, but one that offers great rewards not only for yourself, but for your children and for everyone else in society. That's what civil disobedience is for. I don't know why, but that uh, this column just struck such a nerve with me because it rang so true. This is, this is part of that uh, idea that you want to make a difference in life? Well, what you need to do is start by being a really, really good person. You want to shake the world up? Be a great person. And I know it's, it, that sounds trite. Well, it's so simple, then I guess I'll just be good. But no, it takes effort. And this is, this is the difference between virtue signaling and actually living like a good person. Living like a good person requires serious effort. I'll liken it to, uh, you know, climbing a rope hand by hand, you know, sweat dripping off your face. Seems like you're never going to get there. But it's the effort. That's, that's the point. The effort is what improves you. It's what, it's what uh, provides the heat and pressure to make you a diamond. And yes, the world is a better place for everybody who's willing to undergo that effort. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to recognize GarageDoorProServices.com. Garage Door Pros are one of my sponsors here. And specifically for my audience in southwestern Utah, that means St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona, this is the go-to place for installation, service, and repair of garage doors. That includes commercial service as well as residential. They offer quick response, much faster lead time than other companies can give you. And I thought I'd mention this because I know this is important to a lot of folks. The garage doors that they sell, service, and repair are made in America. 
So it's a local company. You should really give them your consideration if you find yourself in need of a garage door. That's garagedoorproservices.com. Well, it's telling that calls to bring the FBI to heel are now starting to be heard in a lot of different places. In fact, I was reading an article on lewrockwell.com yesterday that said this is one of those world-turned-upside-down moments. You remember the, the significance of that phrase? I believe that's what Cornwallis instructed uh, the, the British uh, Army Band to, to, to play as, as he was surrendering to George Washington at Yorktown. It was the unthinkable. Those ragtag colonists had somehow beat His Majesty's armed forces and secured their freedom. And so the, the band played, the world turned upside down. Well, now you have... In respectable publications that cover national politics, I'm talking like, in other words, uh, ones that have a credible voice within the D.C. Beltway, calls to rein in the FBI. In fact, Charles C.W. Cook makes the case not just for reining it in, but actually for abolishing it, dismantling it. I want you to hear his reasoning. Maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't, but... You know, looking at some of the things that have happened here of late, especially the raid on this pro-life pastor and his family in Pennsylvania. I mean, for crying out loud, the the worst that this pastor would have been facing is a misdemeanor charge because he got into a shoving match with a a particularly uh, strident pro-abortion activist who was accosting his son, like getting in his 12-year-old son's face, screaming profanities, and this pastor pushed him back a couple of times. In fact, I think the the, uh, activist fell at one point, but uh, was not injured. Since when do you send, you know, two dozen or more rifle-wielding SWAT members to somebody's house to arrest them over something like that? You only do that if you're trying to send a message. So here's what Charles C.W. Cook says. He says, in the New York Times this week, Brett Stevens complained that in unholy conjunction with the Department of Justice, the FBI had disgraced itself yet again with its public smear of Representative Matt Goetz. Stevens said, I don't like Goetz's politics or person any more than you do, but what we seem to have here is a high-profile politician being convicted in the court of public opinion of some of the most heinous behavior imaginable, trafficking a minor for sex, until the Justice Department realizes two years late that its case has fallen apart. Which, well, yeah, that's what the FBI is for. Last week, a whistleblower named Kyle Serafin told the, uh, or is it Serafin? It's Serafin. My apologies, Kyle. Told the Washington Times that the FBI had adopted an entirely ridiculous internal process for determining every single national priority. Now, one has to ask, ridiculous from whose perspective? Relative to the FBI's stated mission, its behavior does indeed look ridiculous. Relative to its historical conduct, its behavior seems pretty standard. What the FBI did to Matt Getz is exactly what it did to Donald Trump. And what it did to Donald Trump is what it's been doing since it was founded, namely spying on or attempting to discredit anyone who irritates the powers that be. This, you may recall, is the same agency that tried to persuade Martin Luther King Jr. to kill himself. It's the same agency that compiled a list of 12,000 Americans and, upon the outbreak of the Korean War urged President Truman to jail them without trial. It's the same agency whose response to the KKK's murder of civil rights worker Viola Liuzzi, Liozo, let me try that again, Liuzzo, a murder that may have been abetted by an undercover FBI agent, was to spread rumors that Liuzzo was a heroin-addicted communist and a deadbeat mom. 
It's the same agency that kept a file on John Denver, the author of such subversive works as Take Me Home, Country Roads, because he was opposed to the Vietnam War. When in 1974, Deputy Attorney General Lawrence Silberman was tasked with reviewing J. Edgar Hoover's secret papers, he was horrified by what he found. Hoover, Silberman wrote, had allowed his FBI to be used by presidents for nakedly political purposes and engaged in subtle blackmail to ensure his and the Bureau's power. Matt Getz is merely the latest in a long line of victims. Now, Charles C.W. Cook says many Americans were shocked when they learned the details of last week's extraordinarily disproportionate raid against a pro-life activist in Pennsylvania. Well, they shouldn't have been. The FBI thrives on disproportionality, which, when things go wrong, it habitually supplements with innuendo. As Stevens correctly noted, we tend to err the most when we assume the worst about the people we like the least. One doesn't have to admire Randy Weaver to see that the murders at Ruby Ridge could have been avoided if the FBI hadn't elected to entrap him in the first place. One doesn't have to admire David Koresh to grasp that the bloodshed at Waco could have been avoided if the FBI had picked him up in town instead of going in all guns blazing in an attempt to impress Washington, D.C. By the way, just for clarification, in both Ruby Ridge and, uh, and in Waco, it was the ATF that let out, but it was the FBI that really took those, those uh, situations to their deadliest conclusions, including shooting a mother in the face as she held her baby in her arms. Just saying. There, there's some, some clarification there. Now, does the FBI care? Charles C.W. Cook asks. Has it ever? No. Since 1935, and indeed even before that, back when it was just the Bureau of Investigation, it's been a violent, expansionist, aggrandizing, careless outfit which sits awkwardly within the American constitutional order and seems almost proud of that regrettable fact. Apologists for the agency like to insist, well, it's changed since the bad old days, but change requires contri- contrition and none of any significance has been forthcoming. It's been decades since the FBI learned who J. Edgar Hoover really was, and his name still proudly adorns the FBI's headquarters. It is what it is. So he says, a while back I jotted down a list of potential reforms on the FBI, of the FBI rather on a piece of paper on my writing desk. In no particular order they included mandating that if no underlying crime is discovered by the FBI in the course of an investigation, no process crimes can result from that investigation, unless those process crimes are a lie to a grand jury or a lie that prevents the exoneration of an innocent person, or mandating that because it's expected to investigate crimes rather than people, the FBI explain in detail at the outset of any investigation the specific cause it has to begin its work or mandating that the FBI as an agency of the federal government explain in detail at the outset of any investigation why it, rather than a state or local police force, is getting involved in the case. Or mandating that the FBI is forbidden from publicly announcing it's conducting an investigation until charges are brought. Or mandating that if an investigation is announced in error or leaked, the FBI publicly announced the closure of the case if and when that closure comes and that FBI staff refrain from implying in public that the subject of their closed investigation is guilty. Now, those were some of the things he had recommended, but he says, since then, I've changed my mind. I still favor all of these reforms, which, if implemented, would undoubtedly improve upon the status quo. But having reflected a little bit more on the broader question, I now think the FBI ought to be destroyed from the ground up. End it. Disassemble it dissolve it, repeal its charter, evacuate its building, spoil its budget and supplies. 
That's a pretty bold statement. He says, it's possible in theory to conduct an earnest brief in favor of an FBI-style police outfit that deals with matters of exclusive federal concern. But in practice, that case doesn't amount to to a defense of this FBI. And he asks the question, can that be fixed? Has it ever been fixed before? In the heart of its capital city, the United States now has a bureau that intervenes with impunity in our ideological and partisan disputes that has developed a massive statutorily unwarranted intelligence collection wing and that has never managed to escape the paranoia and corruption of its execrable execrable, tyrannical founder. Americans who are tired of it ought to insist that it be dismantled wholesale and that any replacement be approved only after a long, meaningful, sanctimony-free debate about the role of government and its enforcers in our lives. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hi, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention that the month of September is going quickly. Since it is National Preparedness Month, it would really be in your interest to click on the link I provide for one of my sponsors, that being lifesavingfood.com. I'd like to encourage you to check them out and maybe do a little bit of purchasing, especially because uh, while it's still National Preparedness Month, you can save up to 30%. Click on the link to find out more about it. 30% savings, that's nothing to turn your nose up at. And considering the times that we live in, I don't think there's ever been a better time to get more prepared, to be more capable of being self-sufficient. There's a lot of stuff on that website that will help you to that end. Again, that's lifesavingfood.com. All right, where to go next? I don't know if I can remember a time in my life, and I'm not that old, I'm in my mid-50s, but I don't think that any of us really have seen such an inversion of truth as we're seeing right now. And it's, it's the, the truth that says, well, you know, it's good, it's normal to take the kids to, you know, drag queen story hour, or it's a good, normal thing for government to be, you know, in everybody's business, in every aspect of their life. There's so much that's just been turned on its head, and, and it's, it's tough especially if you're a person who places value on truth or, for that matter, feels called to stand up for truth wherever possible. Got a great article here from Jonathan Barnes. This was published in intellectualtakeout.org. He calls it uh, Standing for Truth in Scaryville. Here's how he puts it. He says, Walking recently in the fast gentrifying former Milltown section of Middle America in which I live, I spied yet another sign taped to a front window. Anti-choice is not pro-life, it read. Yeah, pro-choice is pro-life, I mutter under my breath as I passed. He says, I'm no longer surprised by the signs I see in many windows of this section of Pittsburgh, known as Larryville. Scaryville might be a better term for it, given the number of hairy-legged, dress-wearing men flouncing around like it's Halloween. These statement signs litter the formerly mean row houses, now occupied by folks who mostly prefer having dogs or cats to having spouses or children. On my way back home, I take a new route, seeing another sign as I go, Safe abortions for all, it reads. Uh, Abortion is fatal to babies, I think to myself. It seems that down is up in Scaryville. Vice is virtue, lies are truth. Killing can be safe for all. He's got a point. Now, some might find the burgeoning number of neighborhood signs declaring fealty to the unholy sacrament of child sacrifice discouraging. 
But Jonathan Barnes says, I think they're a good sign. He says, they're a form of virtue signaling, pure and simple. But that virtue signaling also happens to signal that those who hold traditional values are gaining ground against woke ideals. The sad news is many on the traditional many of those on the traditional side of things belie the same human frailty as their woke counterparts. Christian or not, they do this by reveling in and feeling justified by practicing their own sin, all while urging others not to be so sinful. He says, I saw an example of this the other day when I read one conservative commentator suggesting that woke individuals should abort their unborn children, since we'd all be better off if they did. But when we fall into this trap, he says, we make ourselves God, setting up our own truth and moral law and trying to save our culture with half measures. In fact, he says, I fell into a similar trap once upon a time. I was left-leaning in my views then and was wanting to conform Jesus and Christianity to my way of thinking, confusing the unconditional love that both offer with non-discrimination and acceptance. He says, you want your own personal Jesus, one of my brothers pointed out to me at the time. You don't want Jesus as he is. You want him to conform to your views. And Jonathan Barnes says, we do the same thing today. We want moral behavior from our fellow Americans, but we detest anyone moralizing to us. Traditional fathers want their children to be virtuous individuals. Yet those same fathers boast of their past sexual conquests as if they're the essence of life, falling for the same old lie of materialism trumping all. He says many of us traditionalists want more people to know the truth, but we're not even sure we totally believe it ourselves. We reject parts of the truth, as many atheists do, but in the next breath, we want people to have more faith. We speak out of both sides of our mouths like politicians. As more than one writer has noted recently, we can't simply declare the virtues we believe are necessary to hold our world together. We have to live those virtues. Would you like a chaste and sober girlfriend who doesn't get drunk and sleep around and claim it's empowering? Then be chaste and sober yourself first both as an example to others, but also to increase your chances of finding her. Like attracts like. Do you want others to have more faith? Show them how. By growing your own faith, by going to church, spending time in God's Word and in prayer, and in fellowship with others who believe the same way. We often learn by example. Jonathan Barnes says, America is now a collection of scarywills. And if we're going to get it, to, if we're going to see it get saner, kinder, more beautiful, virtuous, and neighborly, it's up to each of us to do our part. We need to recognize our failings, repenting to heaven if needed, and then cutting out the evil we exhibit in our daily lives, both because it's wrong and because it tacitly encourages others to sin. We must live more upright lives, not just to save America or because it will make us happier, but to show the difference between us and the hypocritical, wildly gesturing, virtue-signaling types. Actions do speak louder than words, so he says, don't just stand for the truth, live it. I kind of felt that one too. That one stung me because I thought, you know what? I talk a lot. I mean, look, that's what I do, right? But uh, I could do a better job of living the truth that I speak of. So... Jonathan Barnes, you don't see it, but I'm saluting you and saying thank you. I, I needed that reminder that uh, it's, it's really, it's the actions that tell who we really are. Anybody can say words, but it's our actions that show us for, for who we are. How is it, how did it, oh, Eric Mutzos, maybe you remember Eric, 
This was the uh, former Salt Lake City uh, uh, police officer who was asked to, no, he was assigned to perform in a gay pride parade a few years back doing precision maneuvers on his uh, police motorcycle. And Eric said, because of his conscience, he says, you know what? It's one thing to provide security at the parade, but he says to be an active part of it, to be a participant, went against his moral grain. So he asked for reassignment. And if you don't know the story, he was actually uh, discriminated right out of the police force. Ooh, they came down on him hard, accusing him of biased or bigoted, you know, behavior. He he can't treat people fairly, so we're going to have to get rid of his uh, police credentials. And since then, he has become one of the most influential people that I know in a good way. But Eric uh, posted something here just a couple of years ago that just really was, was revealing. And it was just a simple meme that said, the person you are behind the wheel is the person you are. I know. I know. I, I read that. I thought, you know, most of the time I think I'm a pretty good person. But man, you get me in traffic or uh, what was it the other day going to see the doctor um, to get my shoulder checked out. Um, just driving down the road and I knew I was in the blind spot of the car that was in the lane next to me. But I was, you know, paying close attention because I didn't want, you know, to get run into. And sure enough, without so much as a turn signal, suddenly this car starts coming over into my lane, trying to push me off the road. And the anger, the fury that I felt over that. I mean, I show up at the doctors and I'm like, please do not take my blood pressure right now because it's high. It's really high. I'm, you know, I'm blaming, of course, you know, the, the, well, it was another person's crappy driving, but you know what? My reaction to it, that wasn't good. That wasn't healthy. It was an, it was a mistake. I think it was an honest mistake. I don't think they were trying to, you know, run me off the road, Dukes of Hazard style. Just, uh, yeah, I got some work to do. By the way, I haven't given an update on my shoulder in, in, in a couple of episodes here. So I just want to tell you, uh, I fell a week ago, dislocated my shoulder, had a wonderful experience with that, by the way. Um, Wink, wink. That was sarcasm. But uh, it looks good. Looks like things are healing. You know, the doctor looked at it, said your strength, your range of motion, all looks good. We'll check back in another four weeks. We'll see how it goes. What a relief. But I kind of got hit with something unexpected the other day. In fact, I scared my wife to death because uh, the other night I rolled over in my sleep and uh, rolling over on that shoulder. I don't know what I did. I felt something pop. I was sound asleep. But I felt the pop, and about a second later, pain. Oh, my goodness. Serious. Enough that it woke me up. You know, I, I was pretty loud. It, it was very painful, which, of course, scared my wife. You know, all of a sudden, out of a dead sleep, I'm just, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Fortunately, it's all getting better. But uh, it's like my old friend Jim Lorenz used to tell me, getting old ain't for sissies. So I'm learning. You know what, as someone who, it turns out, is kind of a sissy, yeah, not so, not so much fun. All right, we'll be back here in just a few moments. Got a couple other important things I would like to send your direction. If you would like to receive my show notes, just as a potential source for information to get a better grasp on the world, I will uh, gladly send them to you each and every day that I do the program. All you're going to need to do is go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, down at the bottom of the page on my show notes. You'll see a subscribe button. Share your email address with me, and I will start sending those, uh, those show notes to you each day that I do the program. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. HSLAmmo.com is one of my sponsors. I hope you'll take the time to do some business with them. I got to sing the praises of Spencer Worthington while I'm at it. He's the founder of the company. He's the president of HSLAmmo.com. One of the greatest individuals that I know. From a personal standpoint, I mean, he is a decent human being. That's important. But he's also a remarkable businessman and just a wonderful ambassador for the shooting sports. So if you, uh, if you live in southern Utah, you're fortunate enough to, to be in the St. George community. Spencer is a part of your community, and it would mean a lot to me that if you need ammunition or if you're headed to the range, maybe avail yourself of some HSL ammo. Just click on the link I provided in my show notes, and you can figure it all out from there. So here's a question for you. Do you feel like you're encountering a growing number of enforcers in your life? In other words, are, are you seeing enforcers in places where you didn't see them before? If you're feeling that, you're not alone, first of all. Got an article here from Ben Barty. This is from ZeroHedge.com. The Rise of Public Health and Green Police. Securitization Theory. He says, once upon a time, cops were tasked primarily with things like catching murderers and rapists and protecting property. Now, this is in the context of, you know, policing has come a long way from the good old boy Barney Fife. Now, police were always used, of course, whenever necessary to protect state interests. But then again, the state's interests weren't so obviously nefarious and illegitimate as they are today. Law enforcement's purview expansion is explained in large part by what he calls securitization theory. And as a result of this process, peculiar breeds of law enforcement, public health officers and green police have sprung up throughout the West. Now, the basic premise of securitization theory in political science is that given the opportunity, a state will endlessly concoct new security threats as justification to exercise greater power outside of the constraints of the normal political process. In fact, he has a quote here. Securitization theory shows us that national security policy is not a natural given, but a careful, but carefully designed by politicians and decision makers. According to securitization theory, political issues are constituted as extreme security issues to be dealt with urgently when they've been labeled as dangerous by a securitizing actor who has the social and institutional power to move the issue beyond politics. So here's how the process works in a nutshell. The government identifies a new existential threat, whether legitimate or overblown, either naturally occurring or cynically engineered by the state itself. The corporate media and corporate state stoke fear about the threat into the hearts and minds of the gullible public. In the fog of panic, the state slyly provisions itself with new authority and resources to combat the threat, thereby increasing its power. The threats change, but whether domestic terrorism, COVID-19, or climate change, the process largely remains the same. Once you download the blueprint for the securitization process, analyzing the state's actions in real time becomes as easy as reading lines off a script. COVID-19 gets reframed as a national security issue. The average American, the average pre-9-11 American, wouldn't have believed that a trumped-up flu could ever be conceived as a national security threat. But 9-11 changed everything and securitization became routine. The corporate, health, the corporate state's apparatuses, like the RAND Corporation, were ready to pounce on the new COVID-19 public health emergency and cast it as a national security issue. 
Here, the uh, Rand Corporation likens COVID-19 hysteria to World War II. Quote, COVID-19 is the greatest threat to the United States to materialize in over a century. To put it into perspective, World War II, which many consider to have been an existential threat, claimed an average of 9,000 American lives per month. And when the safety of the nation is endangered, the situation becomes a matter of national security, and it should be treated as such. End quote. I mean, you get that? America used to go to war with Nazis. Now it goes to war against microbes and the climate. Security issues require securitizing actors, enforcement mechanisms to counter the threat. Hence the public health officer. Hence biomedical martial law. And from here he writes about the rise of the public health officer, the new frontline enforcer for the biomedical state. This miserable creature is here to ensure you take your shots, wear your mask, and most importantly, shut your mouth. He's granted full enforcement power and broad jurisdiction to enforce public health orders, such as curfew, regulates times during which a person is required to stay indoors, social distancing, maintaining distance between people to avoid the spread of a disease. Quarantine, restricts the movement of people who show symptoms or are potentially infected by a disease. Self-quarantine, the voluntary act of putting oneself in quarantine. Isolation, separate sick sick people from those who are not. Shelter in place, meaning stay at home, requires individuals to stay in a safe, non-public location, meaning home, except for essential activities and work until told otherwise. Isn't that interesting? Somehow, self-quarantine is both voluntary and enforceable by a public health officer if you won't do it yourself. And he includes a tweet that really shows what this looks like. And it shows a portly Canadian public health officer detaining a pair of overpolite Canadian travelers, confiscating their passports and demanding proof of vaccination for non-compliance with COVID protocols. And he cites the broad power granted in the Canadian Quarantine Act as the source of his authority. Crazy. By the way, I, I, somebody had posted this on Twitter the other day, and it was Australian police accosting a woman on the street because she wasn't wearing a mask. Remember, this is outside. She's out there walking down the street. She's not breathing in anybody's face. But this police officer accosts her, and when she refuses to you know, acquiesce to what he's saying about you know, the need to, to write her a ticket or to, to, to get her off the street... He grabs her by the throat and begins manhandling her to arrest her. And I mean, it's that is the face of what people in power did to the public with the excuse of COVID-19. I'm sorry, my, my blood pressure is starting to spike again. It's just just thinking about it. It's infuriating. And and I mean, stuff like that, if that kind of stuff was happening around me regularly. I don't know that I would go out in public much at all. Not so much because I want to avoid being the one who's, who's getting choked, but because if I saw someone doing that, I would be dead or in jail. I don't think I could sit back and watch somebody sit there and grab a woman by the throat for the crime of not wearing a mask and not intervene. Is that, does that sound reckless? You know, I know, if some, well, Brian, now you, you know, we got, we're a nation of law and order. Come on, the most lawless behavior. That, that, that I've seen in the last couple of years, minus a few mostly peaceful riots, is someone acting on behalf of the state with that kind of menacing and, and actually just assaulting a person for nothing. 
If that doesn't at least move the needle on your ire a little bit, you might want to check your heartbeat. Bad news. Back to the article here. So let's consider three points of uh, why this, uh, this uh, securitization takes place. The corporate state controls the police. The corporate state from Australia to Canada to Great Britain insists on vaccine mandates and have enforced draconian lockdowns for years. And we've seen the hell they've unleashed on anti-mandate protesters worldwide using actual flesh-and-bones dogs. Actually, I think it was the Netherlands that really were, were bad about using dogs against people, although included in the article is video of police setting an attack dog on a protester in England at a uh, anti-COVID passport over the weekend. Seems like a recipe for more of the same, except, you know, with technology, it looks like we're going to be using robot dogs instead of actually Rover. How long until that uh, robot dog gets sicked on you? Does that not sound like a description of techno hell? And then we haven't even touched on the public health officer's successor, because this is the next crisis, which is ginning up right now. The Green Police. France recently created a legion of Green Police Brigades to combat climate change offenders. Gerald, Gerald Darmanian, uh, who serves as France's Minister of the Interior, announced that he aims to create 3,000 posts for green police officials, a move he's deemed necessary in the, uh, in the effort to tackle climate change. European and North American green police will enforce increasingly common North Korea-tier curtailing of basic human dignity, like forcing shop owners to turn off their lights at night and limiting heating and air conditioning. I know, it's, it's maddening. And of course, just following orders is the oldest, lamest excuse for government goons to excuse their aberrant behavior. One that didn't save the Nazi camp guards at Nuremberg, and it won't this time either if we don't allow it. The author here is saying basically we're overdue, long overdue, for Nuremberg 2, which should be a pillar of every opposition candidate's platform. As for individual action, he says, it's time to get free with the parallel economy. And he includes a link that can help you better understand what that looks like. Again, this is from Ben Barty. He's an independent Bangkok-based Bangkok based American journalist with opposable thumbs. I kind of like that byline. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you think about it, hit that subscribe button at the bottom of the show notes and become a subscriber. This is The Brian Hyde Show.